Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about blood pressure in older adults. Now, in a previous episode, I talked about the benefits of having a home blood pressure monitor. This is a device that I really think every older person should consider having at home. And in that episode, I covered three very common situations in which they are helpful. And one of them is um, for the many people who have a diagnosis of high blood pressure or who are on blood pressure medications, one of the benefits of a home monitor is so that you can make sure that your blood pressure is being correctly managed. But what I didn't address in that episode is something that I know many people wonder about, which is what exactly should an older person's blood pressure be? So that's what we're going to address in today's episode. And I'm going to start by reviewing why this is a good question. So the reason why this is such a good thing to think about is that high blood pressure, which is called hypertension in medical speak, this is a very common condition among older adults. About 60 to 80% of older adults have hypertension. It's the most common chronic condition among Medicare beneficiaries. And if you are age 55 to 65 and you don't have it, don't assume that you're in the clear because actually people tend to develop it as they get older. And so some experts have estimated that if you are in that age range, um, mid 50s to mid 60s, and you don't have hypertension, you still have a 90% lifetime chance of eventually developing it. Now, hypertension is sometimes called the silent killer. It's a little bit dramatic. Silent because most of the time people don't feel any symptoms and won't know they have it until their blood pressure is checked. And then they call it a killer. That's because high blood pressure is implicated in the most common causes of death and disability among older adults. And so that means things like heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, And all of these problems are collectively called cardiovascular disease, and that is the number one cause of death for older men and older women. Furthermore, high blood pressure can cause or worsen conditions such as atrial fibrillation, kidney disease, and many others. So it's an important condition to be aware of, to check for, and then to try to manage appropriately. Also, it's important to consider treating high blood pressure because studies have shown that older adults benefit from treatment. And doctors did not always know this. So here's a little bit of fun medical history, which some of you may already know of. For quite a long time, the medical community assumed that it was quote unquote normal to have high blood pressure when you were older. And the rule of thumb was that your systolic blood pressure, so systolic means the top number in the blood pressure reading, And that reflects the blood pressure when the heart squeezes. The bottom number is called diastolic blood pressure. So the rule of thumb used to be that a normal systolic blood pressure for somebody was 100 plus their age. 
So that meant that uh, not too long ago, this is just a few decades ago, if a person was 70 and had a systolic blood pressure of 170, everybody thought that was basically okay because it was awfully common. And that's because the arteries tend to stiffen as people get older. And so having a higher blood pressure, especially a higher systolic blood pressure, is very common when people get older. However, some really important research was done uh, several decades ago and trials of high blood pressure treatment of older adults were published in the 90s and 2000s, and they really changed our thinking on this. And what those trials confirmed was that treating the high blood pressure of older adults did result in a reduced risk of stroke, of heart attacks, and of death. Now, in those studies, just about everybody, depending on the study, people were at least age 60. There was one study that focused on people who were aged 80 or older. But everybody in those studies started off with a systolic blood pressure of at least 160. And generally, the ones who got the, quote, active treatment, so the more um, intense treatment or the treatment that was not placebo, the ones who had active treatment for their high blood pressure generally got their blood pressure down by 15 to 20 points. So they ended up with a systolic blood pressure in um, the 140s to low 150s. So those were the groundbreaking studies at the time, which helped everybody in the medical community realize that, um, that an older person with a blood pressure above 160 did have a condition that could be treated and that treatment could reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. So today, it's now the standard of care to assess older people for hypertension and to treat them if their blood pressure seems to be too high. And the most common definition of hypertension, I don't think this has been revised lately, is that you can be diagnosed with hypertension if you have documented blood pressure in the office, and it's supposed to be documented, I think, on at least two or three separate occasions. But if you have blood pressure that is over 140 over 90 in the doctor's office, and that's been repeated a few times, then that qualifies as hypertension. So today, we generally all agree that hypertension is worth caring about in older adults, but we're still left with some dilemmas that come up for us as uh, clinical providers, and then also for older people and for their families. And the issue is, this is especially an issue for us as doctors, if we're going to lower an older person's blood pressure, what should the target blood pressure be? And how hard should we be working to try to get the blood pressure down? And if you're an older adult or a family caregiver who's being proactive and making sure that healthcare is being properly managed, how do you know if high blood pressure is being suitably managed? And these questions have become even more important today because over the past uh, few decades, along with a better understanding of how high blood pressure affects older adults, we've also developed a better understanding of the downsides of medical treatment, especially treatment that involves medications. So we've developed a better understanding of the side effects and interactions, drug interactions, that people, especially older adults, are often exposed to when they take a lot of medications. We're developing a better understanding of the effort and work of being a patient and the fact that when people have to take many medications, that's often a burden on their time or it can be very expensive. 
There's also been greater interest in the problem of orthostatic blood pressure changes. So this is that phenomenon that I've mentioned in some of the podcast episodes, for instance, regarding falls. This is that phenomenon where when a person stands up, their blood pressure drops. It's very common in older adults. It affects about 20% of older adults. It's even more common when people take blood pressure medications. It can cause dizziness, lightheadedness. It has been connected to falls in research, and actually just blood pressure medication has been connected to falls, with one study finding that older people had a higher risk of hip fracture in the few months after starting blood pressure medications. So although we want to treat high blood pressure, we've also are developing a greater appreciation for the idea that there is probably a sweet spot that we want to find for patients where the likely benefit of treatment outweighs the risks of harm and the burdens of taking the treatment. And then there's an additional reason why this question of what should an older person's blood pressure be has become really relevant and of interest to a lot of people. And that's because over the past few years, we've had some major uh, developments in terms of recommendations on blood pressure, and we've had some major media coverage that has caught the attention of the public. So namely, in December of 2013, major guidelines related to the treatment of high blood pressure were released. And for the very first time, they recommended a higher blood pressure target for adults age 60 and older. And that was uh, somewhat controversial in the medical community. Quite a lot of doctors disagreed with that recommendation from the expert panel. And I'll talk a little bit more about those uh, guidelines later in this episode, because I think it's important for you to understand a little bit more about them and how that panel reached those conclusions. And then last fall, so in the fall of 2015, a big federally funded trial of intensive blood pressure lowering in older adults, that study was in people age 50 and older, the preliminary results of that study were released and they made a splash because they seemed to contradict the guidelines. Because in that study population, the researchers found that treating to a lower target blood pressure was better. So again, if you're an older person taking medications for high blood pressure or if you're helping your aging parent, what blood pressure are you supposed to be aiming for and what blood pressure should your doctor be aiming for? So ultimately, as in almost everything when it comes to healthcare for older adults, it's really important to tailor the goal to the health circumstances of the specific person and also that person's values and preferences and priorities. I mean, some people are willing to do a lot of work for every little reduction they can in their risk of dying prematurely, and other people are less inclined to do this. And then certain chronic conditions will also push doctors to recommend a certain level of blood pressure control. And so in the end, this has to be discussed with one's providers and it has to be individualized. But based on the guidelines and the research, we can still have a general sense of um, the benefits and risks of aiming for certain levels of blood pressure control. And so my goal in this episode is to cover some of that information so that you can understand Uh, What are these guideposts that I feel uh, doctors and uh, older people and their families should consider aiming for? So specifically what I'm going to do in the rest of this episode is um, I am going to talk a little bit more about those major guidelines that came out 
at the very end of 2013. I'm also going to explain what you should know about the SPRINT blood pressure trial. That was that trial that got lots of coverage in the media in the end of 2015. That made a lot of people wonder whether they should be targeting a much lower blood pressure than perhaps they were before. Uh, I'm also going to talk about why the most important thing to do if you're worried about blood pressure is to focus on how it's being measured, and I'm going to tell you how you can improve that for yourself or for an older family member. And then I'm going to finish by sharing the key principles that I use when setting a goal blood pressure and treating high blood pressure in older adults. So let me start now by telling you a little bit more about those major guidelines that were announced at the end of 2013. So there's a group that's called the Joint National Committee on the Prevention, Detection, Evaluation, and Treatment of High Blood Pressure. It is abbreviated JNC. This is a really blue ribbon panel of people that until recently were convened by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. So uh, those particular guidelines were issued by the eighth such group. So they're called JNC-8. And for reference, the previous set of guidelines had been JNC-7, and those had been issued in 2003. In the past, the JNC guidelines have really been considered a crucial benchmark and reference point for the treatment of high blood pressure. And the JNC goes through a very detailed, careful process when um, issuing their recommendations. They basically spend years before the guidelines are issued, reviewing very carefully all the relevant research, thinking about how to package it all together, deciding which research is better quality and which is less, and turning it into some summary recommendations. And especially in recent years, there's been increasing effort when experts come together to create guidelines to try to really ground them in the best quality research evidence and to rely less on expert opinion, which is how these guidelines used to be done a long time ago. And so the best research evidence is usually considered to be randomized control trials. And this means that a group sets up a study where they recruit participants. They usually have very detailed protocols on who can be recruited and how. And then once people are recruited, they get assigned randomly to get one treatment or another. And the uh, participants are followed to see uh, whether certain health outcomes emerge. And ideally, the people who assess the outcomes don't know what kind of treatment the person got. And so those are randomized controlled trials, and they're considered the sort of gold standard for understanding how a given treatment affects people and affects a certain health outcome. So the JNC-8 group made history by for the first time recommending a higher blood pressure treatment target for older adults. And so for the first time, they recommended that, um, that when older adults are treated for high blood pressure, most of the time a suitable goal would be to get the blood pressure to less than 150 over 90 rather than uh, 140 over 90, which was the treatment goal that they had before for everybody and which they continued to recommend for most people being treated for high blood pressure. This was very controversial. There were even experts within the JNC group who didn't agree with it. Uh, they came under a lot of fire, but the take of the majority of the JNC group was that the evidence from randomized controlled trials didn't support a lower blood pressure target for older adults. And what they felt was that there weren't enough 
there wasn't enough really good clinical trial evidence proving that there was a benefit to treating older people to get their blood pressure much below 150. And again, that is probably because, as I mentioned earlier, in those studies that were published in the 90s and 2000s of high blood pressure treatment in older adults, everybody started with a systolic blood pressure of at least 160, and they were usually brought down 15 to 20 points to the 140s or low 150s, and they did um, better with that level of blood pressure lowering. So that is part of why the JNC concluded, well, yes, you want to treat their high blood pressure, but getting them to below 150 is probably fine. And we don't know that making extra efforts to get the blood pressure even lower than that is going to benefit. So they did not recommend it. And furthermore, in 2010, a major study called ACCORD was published, and this was a trial of intensive blood pressure lowering in people with diabetes. This is another group that's considered at high risk for cardiovascular events. The average age of people in that study was 62. And in that trial, people were surprised to find that the researchers found that aiming for a lower systolic blood pressure of 120 compared to a goal of less than 140, did not lead to better outcomes overall. It did lead to a reduced risk of a certain type of stroke, but it didn't lead to fewer deaths overall. So, so this was seen as confirmation that there's a point of diminishing returns, perhaps, when it comes to lowering blood pressure, and that you want to lower it, but you might reach a point where it's not doing any more... Uh, it's not providing any more benefit, and it certainly might provide some harm or increased risk of side effects. So that's where we were at in 2014. Yes, you want to treat high blood pressure, but there might be too much of a good thing. And then the SPRINT trial came along. So now I'm going to tell you about the big trial that made the news in the fall of 2015. And it partly made such a splash because its results seemed to contradict the JNC-8 guidelines which had generated some controversy just a year and a half before. So let me tell you a few more details about that trial, because if you learn a bit about it, you'll be in a better position to understand whether aiming for lower blood pressure is likely to help you or your older relative. And also, in this time when often newspapers are writing about major clinical trials, I think it's good for everybody to learn a little bit more about how to... Uh, what to think about when you hear exciting medical news, um, because I have some thoughts on that. It's actually fairly important to be able to understand whether the results are likely to apply to you or your parents. And so we'll talk a little bit more in this episode about how you can do that. So the SPRINT trial. SPRINT stands for Systolic Blood Pressure Intervention Trial. Most major trials get a sort of handy acronym that makes it easier for them to talk about. And this was a big federally funded randomized control trial. They enrolled over 9,300 people aged 50 or older. And of that group, they actually had special funding to focus on enrolling even older adults. And so within that group, 28% of them were aged 75 or older, which is actually really great for us in geriatrics because often people who are older or sometimes frailer are excluded from trials, which leaves us not quite sure what would be the best treatment for them. So in this case, they had lots of people aged at least 50 and a subset aged 75 or older. And to be enrolled in the trial, you had to be at high risk for cardiovascular disease. And they define this as either being age 75 plus because age by itself um, 
puts you at higher risk of having a cardiovascular event. So again, that means things like heart attacks and strokes. Or you had to have some other criteria for increased cardiovascular risk, like blockages in your carotid arteries or in other arteries, or certain types of cardiac tests that indicated some cardiovascular disease. But what you couldn't have to be enrolled in SPRINT was you couldn't have had actually a stroke. So people with a history of stroke were excluded, and they also excluded people with diabetes, and they excluded people with dementia, and they excluded people who lived in nursing homes. So already, if you or the person you're caring for had, has had a stroke or diabetes or dementia or is in a nursing home, you're not like the people who were in the SPRINT trial, and it's important to keep that in mind. So as they recruited people, they assigned them to one of two blood pressure treatment strategies. One was called intensive treatment, which meant that the care team would aim for a systolic blood pressure of less than 120, and the other was standard treatment, which meant aiming for a systolic of less than 140. And then they started following the group, and the group was followed on average for a little over three years. I say on average because people who get recruited early get followed for longer, and people who get recruited late get followed for less time. And the group was followed on average for a little over three years, and the researchers were assessing how many cardiovascular events and deaths were happening in each group. They also assessed for related what we call adverse events. So those are um, problems that you think are related to the medication or to the intervention being studied. And so in this case, the adverse events that they were assessing for included things like falls, fainting, electrolyte imbalances, because many blood pressure medications affect um, the levels of sodium and potassium and other electrolytes in the body. They evaluated for kidney dysfunction because some blood pressure medications do affect the kidneys and can make them a little worse. And then they also did check periodically for orthostatic blood pressure changes. So they would check people's blood pressure sitting, and then after they'd stood for a minute to see if there was a significant drop and if people seemed to be having any symptoms related to that. So what did SPRINT find? So the group that was being treated intensively for blood pressure got down to an average systolic blood pressure of 122, whereas the standard group got down to a systolic blood pressure of 135. And the intensive group had to take three blood pressure medications on average to reach that more intensive goal, and the standard group ended up uh, on average on two medications, two blood pressure medications every day to get to their level of about 135. And after a few years, the intensively treated group seemed to be doing so much better in terms of reduced risk of cardiovascular events that the study group decided to end the study early. And they do that sometimes because they feel that if there's a real difference, it's sort of unethical to continue the study if one group is doing so much better than the other. So after about three years, they found that the participants getting the intensive blood pressure treatment Uh, seem to be experiencing about a 25% reduction in risk for these cardiovascular events and for death. And so they stopped the trial. They announced that intensive blood pressure control seems to be much better. And a lot of excited media coverage ensued and also a lot of controversy and discussion within the medical community. Now, one thing that people asked me after this happened was, so are the guidelines now different? And the thing to remember there is that 
expert guidelines take a really long time to come out because they go through this very long, careful, deliberate process um, in doing it. So it's not possible for guidelines to be updated within a few months, even when a major study comes out. That said, this was a very large group of people. This was a very well-done study, and I'm guessing that this probably will influence the next round of major guidelines whenever they come out. But now, what does Sprint mean for you? And specifically, the question that many people had after this is, well, does this new research mean that I should aim for a systolic blood pressure of less than 120, or that my parents' doctors should be treating their blood pressure to get it to less than 120? Well, let's hold up and think about this for a while. Sprint is a very good, very important study, but if you're thinking of applying it to your own health situation or to your parents' health situation, there are four really important things to consider, and we're going to go over those. Now, for sprint in particular, and for blood pressure control in particular, what's really important to think about is how was blood pressure measured in the sprint trial, and how does that compare to how your blood pressure is being measured? And then there are three additional questions which you should ask after uh, any major trial is published, and you're wondering whether this is relevant to you, and those three questions are these. One, how similar are you to the group that was studied in the trial? Two, what was the actual magnitude of the benefit? Meaning, how likely are you or someone like you to benefit from taking this treatment, especially if it's a preventive treatment? And then three, what were the harms and downsides of intensive treatment? So, Let's talk about the first issue because it's really, really important actually. And uh, I hope that the sprint trial will bring attention to how we measure blood pressure in, uh, in all people. Because most of the time, we, the way we measure blood pressure is pretty suboptimal. And so we're actually, right now the convention is to treat people based on a sort of sloppy measure. So how was blood pressure checked in the sprint trial? It was checked in a way that is very different from the way blood pressure is checked in usual clinical care. And here's what they did. They had participants come into the office. They had them rest quietly in a room by themselves for five minutes. So they had people connected to an automatic blood pressure monitor, and that monitor took three readings in a row while the person was alone in the room. Each reading was separated by a minute apart. And then the monitor averaged those three readings, and that was used for the reading of the visit. So again, people came in, they rested quietly five minutes, they were alone in the room, and then the monitor checked their blood pressure three times in a row with a one-minute break between each one, and the three results were averaged. This almost certainly results in lower blood pressure readings compared to usual care. And there are a couple of reasons why we know this. Um, there's actually a whole series of studies on blood pressure measurement, which is actually really interesting. And they have found that the usual office-based blood pressure measurement misclassifies people as hypertensive or not hypertensive a surprisingly large portion of the time. And that's because often people don't get a chance to rest quietly when their blood pressure is checked. It may not be done with proper technique, which means people sit with their back supported, their feet on the floor, their legs aren't crossed. And most importantly, their arm, the one wearing the monitor cuff, should be held up at the level of their heart. 
And then we also know that quite a lot of people have higher blood pressure when they come in to see the doctor because they're anxious about the visit or they're anxious about their blood pressure or they're anxious about what people will tell them. So um, the gold standard for measuring blood pressure is actually a technique that's called ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. It involves people wearing a special device. They go home with it. It's strapped to their arm and it checks their blood pressure every 15 to 60 minutes over 24 hours. Checks it during the day, checks it during the night, um, and then presents a reading. This is pretty labor intensive. Um, It has been shown to correlate better to people's later cardiovascular risk than office-based blood pressures, but it's a lot of work. And it's not always covered by insurance. So it's usually only done in research. It's not done in routine care. But that's how we know what people's quote-unquote real blood pressure is. That's our best guess. And so we know that the usual office-based blood pressure doesn't, uh, is, is often quite a bit higher. Um, now, what comes closer to that ambulatory blood pressure monitor that checks you all the time during a day is doing a series of measurements at home with a home blood pressure monitor. So one of those devices for consumers. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But To get to the point, blood pressure in the sprint trial was checked in this particular way that probably leads to lower blood pressures. And actually, the average systolic blood pressure of all participants in the trial before they got assigned to the intensive treatment or the standard treatment was 140, which struck me as low because I feel like in the primary care office, Older people usually have higher blood pressures, even the ones on blood pressure medication. But that might be because in the offices where I've worked, we haven't used this particular approach where people rest quietly for five minutes in a room by themselves before their blood pressure is checked. So if you're thinking, should my blood pressure control be intensified? The very first thing you need to do is think about how can I get a better blood pressure measurement? We'll talk a little bit more about that later in this episode. And now let's move on to the other three things that you need to ask yourself when you hear about a promising research study uh, or clinical you know, medicine results and you're wondering, wow, could this affect my health or my health care? Is this something I should try? So again, those three things were how similar are you to the group that was studied? What was the magnitude um, of the benefit, which really means how likely are you to experience this improved health outcome as a result of using this treatment? And then what were the harms and downsides? So let me cover the first one right now. How similar are you to the study population? So it's important to realize that randomized control trials usually have very clearly defined criteria for being included or excluded. So again, the SPRINT trial You had to be over 50. You had to have some criteria for being at higher cardiovascular risk, except that criteria could not be an actual stroke. And people in Sprint were also, um, people were excluded from Sprint if they had diabetes, dementia, or were in a nursing home. So randomized control trials give us really good information, but they basically tell us what happened to people in that group. And so if you want to extrapolate the results to other people, You're only supposed to do that if the other people are similar to the group that was studied. So for you, if you're wondering about your own blood pressure or your parents' blood pressure, you have to ask yourself, how similar am I to the people who were included in that study? And you should also ask, do I have any conditions or criteria that would have excluded me from the study? 
The next question is, what is the magnitude of the benefit that you can expect? And this is a little bit of a tricky concept, but it's actually really, really important when it comes to deciding whether to continue with a preventive medication or not. So let me see if I can explain it clearly. Often when they report the results of a trial, they talk about the reduction in risk. So that this or that treatment reduced people's risk by 25% or 50% or 30%. And that's important, but what's probably a little bit more relevant is a concept that we call the absolute reduction in risk. And let me give you an example to see if I can illustrate this. So let's say that there's a disease that causes two in a hundred people to die. So that means a 2% death rate. And then a preventive treatment comes along and it reduces your risk by 50%. So now on the treatment, you have a 1% death risk. So taking the treatment has lowered your absolute risk of dying by 1%. So what this means is that if you take the treatment, you have a one in a hundred chance of benefiting because you took the treatment. And so that means that a hundred people have to take the treatment for one person's life to be saved. But now let's consider a different situation where the disease causes two in 10 people to die. So it's a 20% death rate if the treatment reduces the death rate by 50%, that means the death rate goes down to one in 10. And so the treatment has reduced your absolute risk of dying by 10%. So now you actually have a one in 10% chance of benefiting. And 10 people have to be treated to save one life. So my point with this example is that in both cases, the relative risk reduction was 50%. The treatment reduced your chance of dying by 50%, which is a big drop in relative risk. But how likely you are to avoid death due to taking that preventive treatment depends on the absolute size of the drop in risks. So it depends on whether a treatment drops your overall risk by 10 percentage points versus 1 percentage point. So I'm not sure that has been very clear, but... Um, There is a statistic, it was written about in the New York Times last year, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but there's been a tendency in medicine to focus more and more on the statistic that is called the number needed to treat. And that basically means how many people do you have to treat with this preventive um, treatment or curative treatment to save a life or to otherwise make a difference? Because as I was pointing out, the same relative reduction risk, the same reduces your risk by 50% could mean that 100 people have to be treated to save a life or could mean that 10 people have to be treated to save a life. And so for, for us, when we are patients or family members, I think it makes a difference if you know that taking this treatment means you have a one in 100 chance of avoiding this problem versus taking this treatment means you have a one in 10 chance of avoiding this problem. Also, when we say that the treatment gives you a one in 10 chance or one in 100 chance of avoiding the problem, we should be clear that that's the chance of avoiding the problem due to taking the treatment because there will be plenty of people who take the treatment and will still have the problem, the heart attack, the stroke, the death, 
and there'll be people who don't take the treatment who won't have the problem. So uh, it's important to not conflate the number needed to treat, meaning the likelihood that you'll benefit from the treatment. Don't confuse that with the likelihood that you'll have the bad outcome or not have it. Generally, it's more compelling to take something if you have a higher chance of benefiting from taking that treatment. And people often don't realize that for many preventive treatments that we recommend to people, including the treatment of high blood pressure, including the treatment of cholesterol with statins, for many of those, the number needed to treat to save a life is on the order of 50, 75, 100, sometimes 200. So that means that it will be one person in 50 or one person in 75 or one person in 100 or even one person in 200 who avoids death or the heart attack or the stroke due to taking the medication. Now, the thing is a number needed to treat of 100, so that means one person in 100 will avoid death or the bad outcome due to the treatment, that's considered actually very good when it comes to public health and prevention, because even though each individual person only has that 1% chance of benefiting, when you consider the population, you can save a lot of lives. So if one in 100 people is going to be saved, or if you have to treat 100 people, I should say, to save one person's life, if you treat a million people, you save 10,000 lives, and that's a compelling number. On the flip side, all those 100 people, depending on what the preventive treatment is, may be taking a medication every day, may be paying to take it for it every day, and are kind of enduring the hassle, and then sometimes the risk of side effects. So, so in short, it's quite important, I think, when thinking about whether to essentially invest your time and effort in a preventive health strategy, it's important to, con- to have at least a ballpark sense of how many people like you need to do this treatment for somebody's life to be saved or for something important like a stroke or heart attack to be prevented. So what was the absolute benefit seen in SPRINT? So in the SPRINT trial, among the participants, the half of the participants who were treated with intensive blood pressure lowering strategy, so they aim to get the blood pressure less than 120, that group experienced um, 1.65% of them had an event. So a heart attack, a stroke, another cardiovascular event or death, 1.65% of them had an event every year, whereas in the group that had the standard treatment, it was 2.2% of them who had an event every year. So, you know, every year in either group, the number of people who had one of these catastrophic events was still fairly small but it was lower in the group that was intensively treated. And so in recent years, it's become quite common for researchers when they write their paper to calculate a number needed to treat, which is nice because now we're given kind of a specific number that we can can visualize and consider for that absolute benefit. And so what the researchers calculated was that over the three-year follow-up period, intensive treatment gave people a one in 61 chance of avoiding a cardiovascular event and a one in 90 chance of avoiding death from any cause. And this is pretty good as far as numbers needed to treat go because for comparison, if you have known cardiovascular disease 
and you take a statin drug, so those are those drugs that lower cholesterol, drugs like Lipitor and Crestor, the number needed to treat for those is estimated to be 83. So when people take a statin for five years, 83 people have to take that medication for five years for one person to avoid a bad event. Now, while we're talking about absolute benefits, I want to tell you a little bit about the absolute benefit that was seen in the older group within the SPRINT trial. As I mentioned, they made a special effort to recruit people for this trial who were age 75 or older. This cohort was dubbed SPRINT Senior, and the results for that subgroup were published just earlier this year in May of 2016. And what they found was that in that group, there was a higher chance overall in both groups, the ones who had intensive blood pressure control and the ones who had standard blood pressure control, there was a higher rate of cardiovascular events and of deaths. This is not surprising because being older puts you at higher risk for heart attacks and strokes and dying. So in that group, among the ones getting intensive blood pressure treatment, 2.6% of them every year had an event. And among the standard group, it was 3.85% of them every year who had an event or died. But because there was a bigger absolute difference in the percentage of people who had events in the two groups, the number needed to treat among this older subset in SPRINT was lower. And so in this group that was age 75 or older, having the intensive blood pressure treatment gave them a 1 in 27 chance of avoiding a cardiovascular event and a 1 in 41 chance of avoiding death. So this is actually really important. In SPRINT, people who are older had a higher chance of benefiting from that intensive blood pressure treatment than people who were younger. And also in that subgroup analysis of the older group, they made an effort to identify the frailty level of participants. And so they identified a subset that were frail. And when they studied the benefit of intensive blood pressure treatment in that frailer group, they found that they experienced a similar reduction in risk. So that was actually really interesting to me as a geriatrician because that's something that we have not been sure about is when people are frailer, are they as likely to benefit from some kind of preventive strategy or not? And in this study, it seemed that the preventive benefit of having a lower blood pressure target was still present even in people who were frail. So again, Sprint Senior found that an intensive blood pressure lowering strategy did lead to a lower risk for heart attacks and strokes and death compared to a standard uh, treatment strategy and that the number needed to treat was 27 for avoiding a cardiovascular event. So intensive blood pressure control compared to standard gives you a 1 in 27 chance of avoiding a cardiovascular event. So the bottom line regarding the magnitude of benefit, uh, I recommend reading that New York Times article that explains the number needed to treat. I think it's a great concept. And then in the future, or as you consider health approaches that are meant for prevention, you want to try to learn the number needed to treat for people like you. Because we each have just a certain amount of time and energy in our day, and you want to invest your time and energy in things that are likely to give you good bang for the buck. And a lower number needed to treat is better bang for the buck. 
because prevention, especially when it comes to cardiovascular disease, often requires taking a medication every day or sticking with a lifestyle change long term. And, you know, that's an investment of time and energy and sometimes money. So you want to have a sense of how much benefit you're likely to get so that you can put your time and energy towards the things that are likely to give you the most benefit. But of course, when considering a preventive treatment or really any treatment at all, we don't just want to think what is the likely benefit. We also need to think what are the likely harms and what are the burdens of doing this treatment. So let's now talk about what were the harms and adverse events in SPRINT. So quite a lot of people in the trial experienced at least one adverse event. The study authors reported that 38% of the ones who were in the intensive treatment group had an adverse event compared to 37% in the standard group. So a small difference between them and overall fairly high in both groups. The most common adverse event by far was orthostatic hypotension, so blood pressure that dropped when people were standing. So see, this is why I harp about this all the time. It is quite common, and again, that's one thing you can do with your home blood pressure monitor is find out if it's happening. Other adverse events that people experienced included low blood pressure, passing out, electrolyte problems, declines in kidney function, and then most concerning, in a way, were injurious falls because... A fall where people experience an injury can often be a pretty significant event. Now, interestingly, all the adverse events were a little more common in the intensively treated group, except injurious falls, which affected 7.1% in both groups. What about sprint seniors? So that's the subset of participants who are age 75 or older. They had an even higher rate of adverse events, about 48% of participants in either blood pressure treatment strategy, experienced adverse events, and orthostatic hypotension was a little bit more common than in the overall um, group, which is not surprising because being older puts you at greater risk of having your blood pressure drop when you stand. But slightly surprising to me, the injurious fall rate, so the, the percentage of people who had a fall resulting in injury was actually lower than in the overall group. It was 4.9% in the intensively treated group and 5.5% in the standard group. And that was not a statistically significant difference. So that means that when the statisticians run their calculations, that difference of 4.9% and 5.5% could be due to chance, probably because they didn't have a really big group that had fallen in the two groups. So let me now summarize what I feel are the key take-home points for you regarding the SPRINT trial and SPRINT Senior. Basically, if you're like the study group, intensive treatment confers about a 30% risk reduction for cardiovascular events, heart attacks, strokes, heart failure, and so forth. The number needed to treat to prevent a cardiovascular event was 27 in the group that was age 75 plus and 61 overall and the number needed to treat to prevent a death was 41 to 90, depending on the age range being considered. And again, when you consider that number needed to treat, that means, um, so the number needed to treat of uh, 27 to prevent a cardiovascular event in the people who are 75 plus, that means that if you take a bunch of people 75 plus, you need to switch 27 of them from a blood pressure goal of 140 to 120 
to prevent a cardiovascular event. And to get this benefit, people had to take three blood pressure medications instead of two for three years, and adverse events were common, especially in older adults. So what does this mean overall for how we should manage blood pressure in older adults, and what does this mean for you if you're concerned about your high blood pressure? Well, this is how I'm thinking that I'm going to integrate this new knowledge into my own work as a doctor. I think it's great that Sprint demonstrated that there is a benefit to intensive blood pressure treatment because we did not know that for sure in people who are older. And so it's helpful to know that there is a benefit and it's helpful to have this estimate through the number needed to treat of what the benefit is. But my interpretation when I consider the previous studies is that the absolute benefit seen in the earlier studies of high blood pressure the ones where they got people from a systolic blood pressure of above 160 down to the 140s or low 150s, that seemed to have a better number needed to treat. The number needed to treat in those studies seemed to be about 18 to 20. So my conclusions are that the best bang for the buck when it comes to treating high blood pressure is in bringing blood pressure down from above 160 to the 140s. I mean, that is the best bang for the buck there's benefit, and you're also at that range of systolic blood pressure, I think you're less likely to, um, you're less likely to have people take a lot of medications, and there's a benefit there, and you're probably less likely to have um, symptomatic drops in blood pressure when people stand and other complications. Now, if an older person has reached a systolic blood pressure in the 140s, and I'm assuming that we're checking it carefully and not getting a sort of, using these, these higher readings that we probably get in the office because we check blood pressure in a rush and don't let people relax. But if a person seems to have a true blood pressure that is in the 140s and they're similar to the sprint population, then it seems clear that they can enjoy a further reduction in risk for heart attacks and strokes and death by aiming for a more intensive treatment of their blood pressure. But before doing so, I feel it's important that the older patient and the family understand the likely magnitude of benefits. So depending on the age of the person, I would say, okay, we could aim for lower blood pressure, but I want you to realize that this study suggested that this will give you a 1 in 27 chance of avoiding a stroke or heart attack or a 1 in 40 chance of avoiding death. That's you know for people who are over 75. It's important to say that, to say, does that sound like it's worth it to do extra blood pressure checks and take probably an extra blood pressure medication every day? And some people will say yes, but some people might say, one in 27 chance, I would rather do something else. And so maybe we should do something else. So that's an example of how discussing the likelihood that the person will benefit from that extra effort is important. And then I would especially want to proceed with caution in further lowering blood pressure if there have been any concerns about falls in the older person or if they've had any difficulty with their blood electrolytes or with managing medication or with paying for medication. And then if they're already having drops in their blood pressure when they stand up, that would also make me cautious about aiming for a lower blood pressure treatment target. So to finish up, I'm going to review two important things that I recommend you do if you're worried about your blood pressure uh, treatment plan or your parents' blood pressure treatment plan. So the number one thing is, again, 
to check the blood pressure carefully and try to get the best possible information about where your blood pressure or your parents' blood pressure is at. So it's important if you're concerned to not just rely on the measurements that are being taken at your doctor's office. Because as I said, they have been shown to often misclassify people. So here's a better way to go about it, which I think is totally feasible for many people. And this is an approach that actually has been endorsed by major societies that issue recommendations on blood pressure. These organizations have endorsed the use of home blood pressure monitoring because it's been shown to correlate better with what's considered the gold standard of blood pressure measurement than office-based measuring. So here's what they recommend, and I think this is very sound. They recommend that you get a good quality, accurate home blood pressure monitor, and that you take it home, and that you check daily, morning and night, every day for a week. You log it all, and then the averages should represent kind of where your blood pressure is at. And so then you can bring in those readings to your doctor, and one, you'll have a sort of extra information on what your blood pressure is like, because I do have people who write to me and say, well, at the doctor's office, my blood pressure is high, and my, blood pressure, my doctor wants me to take all these medications, but when I check at home, it's low, what do I do? And the answer is, bring in your readings to your doctor, and then bring in your, your monitor also, so that your doctor can check your monitor against the office's measurement, although try to sit quietly in a room for five minutes before you do the office measurement and see if they seem to be um, accurate. Now, there is a particular home blood pressure monitor that I've been testing recently and that I can recommend. It's an Omron home blood pressure monitor, and I like it because it's easy to use and has a Bluetooth connection that makes it easy to transfer the readings to your smartphone and to the internet, and then you can save them, print them, share them with your doctor. So I'll put a link to the article I have on choosing and using a blood pressure monitor in the show notes. But again, if you're worried about blood pressure control or hypertension management, the most important thing to do is to get your, um, to push for a good assessment of your current blood pressure. And a very good way to do that is to get your own, own home blood pressure monitor and check at home twice a day for a week. After that, you don't have to check every day or twice a day until your blood pressure medication has been changed again, perhaps. And then there's a second thing that um, I want to encourage you to do if you've been concerned about blood pressure or cardiovascular risk, and that's to not forget to consider non-drug ways to lower your blood pressure and cardiovascular risk. So the SPRINT trial really emphasized medication. They actually did give lifestyle recommendations to all the participants, but I think the participants weren't particularly supported in executing them. And that's fine for, for that trial, but in real life, medications are a useful tool, but they're not the only way to improve health, and they do come with these downsides and risks. Whereas when you use non-drug approaches to lower blood pressure, that's often safer and can have lots of other benefits. And so the main non-drug ways that we can lower blood pressure or reduce cardiovascular risk are dietary changes, a low-salt diet works for some people, not everybody, exercise, very beneficial, weight loss, not smoking, and then sometimes getting better sleep and less stress can help as well. So that's pretty much wraps up what I wanted to share about blood pressure in older adults. Just to briefly summarize, what should an older person's blood pressure be? I believe that aiming for a systolic blood pressure less than 150 per the JNC8 is reasonable for most older adults 
because studies suggest that the most benefit from blood pressure lowering is in going from 160 or over 160 to the 140s. And then in those older adults who are similar to the people who participated in the SPRINT trial, so no stroke, no diabetes, no dementia, no nursing home, those people can get a small additional benefit by aiming for a systolic of 120, but they may well have to take three blood pressure medications every day, and you should just consider whether that sounds feasible before attempting that. So if you're concerned, again, get a home blood pressure monitor, check at home carefully over a week and bring those in to your doctor to discuss. And then with your doctor, you can um, be sure to ask the doctor what they think is a suitable blood pressure goal for you and to explain why. And then be sure to consider the risk of harms. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode related to blood pressure, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. And I'll also be posting some links to some of the other articles and resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net slash podcast, and you'll see a list of the most recent episodes. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show on iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.